welcome to today's program. Uh, my name is Glenn Deason, a professor at the University of Southeastern Norway. Uh, with me is Alexander Mercuris uh, of the re very renowned uh, Durand podcast. And uh, the guest today is Professor Paul Robinson, who is uh, yeah, a prolific author and uh, uh, a great scholar. <laughs> so welcome, Paul. It's uh, great to see you again. Okay. Um, thank you for having me on. Pleased to be here. So, uh, yeah, so the topic of today is the foundation for the ideological differences in discussions between the West and Russia. As uh, Paul Robinson explained, uh, civilizational thinking is very influential in Russia, as opposed to as much here in the West. And uh, we'll address some of the key issues uh, from yeah, Russian conservatism to Russian liberalism. But just to warm up or to begin, I thought we can start off just by briefly discussing uh, Putin as his a uh, a central figure in the West. Uh, whenever we speak of Russia, we tend to, you know, use Putin's name instead of Russia as a placeholder. Anyways, uh, we, we tend to in the West. We we as Russia, uh, sorry, as walked away from liberalism after the 1990s. We have a tendency to associate him with uh, his KGB background. Uh, you know, he's accused of trying to re rehabilitate Stalin and you know seeking to revive the Soviet Union. But uh, Samuel Huntington argued in the early 90s, this was the single alternative fallacy, which suggested the only alternative to liberalism was communism. Uh, but as he pointed out, there was a third alternative, which was conservatism, which also happens to be what most of its history has been. It's been a very conservative country. And uh, I was wondering if you can uh, uh, tell us like how... How can Putin as a leader be understood from this uh, yeah, conservative prism or or liberal, if that's it? Um, I mean, Putin has described himself as um, a pragmatist of a conservative bent or, or words words to that effect, which actually I think is, is, a, is, a, is a reasonably good description of himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not a deeply ideological person. He's not someone who's come up with sort of original theories of, of, of um, political philosophy or whatever. So I was reading recently Jeffrey Roberts' book on uh, Stalin's library, right? I don't know if you read that one, but, uh, you know, Stalin led, read voraciously. He had thousands of books and, and, and penned articles on dialectical and historical materialism and stuff like this, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's not Putin, right? <laughs> he's, he's, not, he's not an intellectual, and I don't think he imagines himself as an intellectual. Um, he's he is essentially um, a, a pragmatist, um, and as a result, um, he has a certain degree of, of, of ideological flexibility. But at the same time, he does have a sort of conservative bent in the sense that you know he he's he, he's not prone to you know radical philosophical changes or whatever, right? Um, and thinks you know steady as you go progression is is better than kind of upheavals which you know Russia's endured over the years and, and don't seem to have done it uh, an awful lot of good. Um, so you know you, you you it's very hard to pin him down into you know particular boxes because you get sort of different things um, in in different areas and over time. Uh, and also of course policy doesn't always go along with with quite what you say you want so for instance economically if you listen to putin he's 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 a fairly economic liberal according to his rhetoric I mean, he's he's repeatedly said that you know a state planning of economy doesn't work that we can't go back to to the, the soviet system of, of of how we ran things um that you know we must free free enterprise we've got to get the bureaucrats off of the entrepreneurs backs and then two years later, he'll make the same speech saying, you know, we've got to get the, we've got to get the bureaucrats off the uh, entrepreneurs' backs, which shows that obviously nothing has happened. <laughs> and um, at the same time, in fact, that the state's role in the economy has grown in large part due, due, due to pressure from, from the West and the need to, you know, do import substitution and so on. So, you know, um, the ideal then gets, um, you get pushed away by the, from the ideal by, pragmatic mm. considerations and in the end it's like those pragmatic considerations which, mm. which i think ultimately um mm. you know win out 
Can I can I just say, Paul? I've been I, I've been rereading in advance of this interview my old copy of your book on Russian conservatism. And by the way, I should say I think it's an exceptional book, and I think anybody who wants to understand conservative thought in Russia certainly should read it. That's the first thing I just wanted to say. But okay, beyond that, I, I I've been rereading it, and one of the things that I've been finding, and it has been very strange, and it is much stronger, much stronger feeling now than I had when I first read it, is that I am hearing constant echoes from the debates that were taking place in the 19th century, the ideas, the language that was being used in the, in the 19th century, and what we're starting to see coming out of Russia, including Putin himself now. Now, I don't think Putin is an ideological person, as you absolutely correctly say, but I think that as Russia has become more distance from the West, which it has done dramatically over the last year, but increasingly for some time. It has been fascinating to see how Russian debates and indeed Putin's own language is starting to echo and sometimes consciously echo the language and the thinking of Russian conservatives of the 19th century and of the pre-revolutionary period. So we're starting to see talk about, you know, Russia's except, you know, uh, Russia being different from Europe, Russia having a different history from Europe, that um, there's um, a much more conservative social, uh, uh, um, social on social issues, that Russia must stay with its traditions, that assimilation of Western ideas and Western traditions might not work in Russia, it isn't really suitable for Russia. All of these themes are not only now coming back, they are becoming stronger. And as these themes become stronger, we are starting to see references back to some of those people that you were writing about in your book. And by the way, which Glenn has also written about in his book on conservatism, to experts on Russian conservatism in the same program, which I am not. But anyway, those people, yeah. those people they've been writing about, it's interesting to see how their ideas are coming back and how they're being talked about again in ways that perhaps they haven't been in Russia for a very long time and certainly not during the Soviet period. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in, in that regard, Alexander. So, so if you look at the sort of the early Putin um, he was very much talking about Russia being part of Europe. In fact, even I think as late as 2017, he gave a talk to some, um, I think, Italian students in which he said, you know, Russia is a European country. Okay. It, was, it, was very, it was very clear. And, and the idea was, um, you know, uh, Europe from Lisbon to Vladivostok. And, and Russia was, was, was part of the European world. Um, and this was the dream, really, of Russian um the Russian intellectual class and Russian elite for, 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 for you know, 200 years in many ways, in, in one way or another. Um, but uh, more recently, you, you, you get much more reference to Russia's distinctiveness. And in fact, just, just yesterday, um, Putin signed a decree approving the new um, strategic, um, uh, well, I don't know what they call it, the new strategy of the Russian Federation, um, security strategy of the Russian Federation, uh, at the beginning of which it says specifically that Russia is an original state civilization. Um, and then it talks about Russia's European past, but also Russia as a, a Eurasian and Euro-Pacific um, community. Okay, so this, this is a definitely a change of language. Um, and um, in a speech to the Valdai Club in October last year, Putin used the word civilization 20 times. And this, this, is, this is a key word because, as you say, this is something which derives out of 19th century um, uh, philosophy, um, particularly people like Danilevsky, um, Nikolai Danilevsky and, and Konstantin Leontiev, who I mentioned in my, in my book. And in, in that speech, Putin actually cited Danilevsky, a late 19th century Russian thinker, who was very much the originator of this idea that the world is not moving towards Fukuyama's end of history, but rather diverging in multiple directions. Mm -hmm. And then Putin also used the phrase um, flowering complexity. And, and anyone who, who, who knows that 19th century Russian philosophy knows that flowering complexity is taken from this other guy, um, Konstantin Leontiev. 
um, although he didn't actually mention his name, but obviously Putin's speechwriters, whatever, had decided to throw, throw, throw the word in. Um, and with that, you're getting a very conscious um, reference to um, this sort of civilizational thinking of, of the 19th century. Um, so clearly that there, there has been, excuse me, has been some sort of ideological shift. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, it's, it's not just a shift in rhetoric in the sense from, you know, Putin, because one is starting to come across it amongst a lot of other Russians as well. And this is actually, I think, quite new. I don't think, you know, up to very, very recently, I don't think many Russians would have thought of talking about, you know, ideas taken from people like Danilovsky, Danilevsky or Leontiev or people of this kind. But you're starting to see a lot of Russians, maybe not particularly intellectual Russians, they're starting to talk in the same way. And I think this is one of the big differences, at least I felt so, when reading rereading your book was that in the 19th century one of the great concerns that there is within Russian conservatism is of the gulf the separation between the elites and the critical mass of the Russian population and there's a belief on the part of some conservatives that the truth is to be found amongst you know the the, the people you know that they're the ones who are closer to Christ to the spiritual nature of Russia. There's even one of them. I forget which one who says Russians dress like Russians, Russian peasants dress like Russians. They look like Russians. We, the elite, we don't anymore. Now, that doesn't exist in Russia today. You go to Russia, people dress in the same clothes. They talk the same language, education levels. I mean, that whatever else you think about the Soviet period, it did achieve that reunification, if you like, of Russian society in that respect. But one effect is that it's made these ideas, these conservative ideas, much more accessible, or so it seems to me, to people outside the Russian elite, because conservatism, Russian conservatism in the 19th century, was a much more elite phenomenon. Whereas today, I think it's beginning to develop a kind of populism behind it. At least so it seems to me. So it's not just Putin. You you, you see this debate, it's starting to, to expand beyond Putin into the wider reaches of Russia's society. And I wonder whether Putin isn't responding to this rather than initiating it himself. I don't know what both of you think about that. Um. Well, I mean, the, the poet Alexander Pushkin supposedly said that the, the only European in Russia is the state. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's all, all this westernization and so on. It always comes from on, uh, above, but no one really no one really believes in it, apart from the people on high. And, and there are still some Russian conservatives who very much believe that, who, who, who believe that, you know, if, if you gave today's, um, if you gave the Kremlin today a chance to reintegrate in the West, it would drop all that to, you know, we're different rhetoric at, at immediately. Um, and happily go back to Davos, or whatever. but but um, I, I I think I think you're right in what you're saying about this coming from below as much from above, if not more. Um, uh, Putin's, in fact, his his adoption of this rhetoric has lagged behind um, Russian society. So so he he's come actually quite late to this. He he definitely was not the, the initiator. Of this, and in fact, you know, Putin today sounds a bit like um, Communist Party leader Gennady Zyugana thirty years ago. Um, so, so people like Zyugana for saying this a, a long time back, and um, it's also, and I, these ideas have also been um, spread through Russian people um, through schools and universities because in Soviet times they had to do what was called um, historical materialism, you know, compulsory classes on historical materialism, which, which would teach you about the inevitable march of history through um, Marxist social formations, where you go from like um, uh, savagery through to feudalism, through to capitalism, through to, 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 to communism. Uh, that was all got rid of. And in, in its place, you, 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 under the Yeltsin era, you got compulsory classes and what was called culturology, 
And these, these are still, you know, required um, in schools and universities. You see, you have to, the Russian has to have classes on cultureology. And it, it's, it's a very specifically sort of Russian thing. Um, but the idea is you learn about different cultures and so on. This is meant to broaden your mind and, and so on and so forth. But in practice, the way it's done is it's it is what people are taught from from what I've been able to read about this is that you know the world is made up of different cultures and we're all different and and you know Indians are different from Chinese or different from Russians and therefore Russians are different right and and so this this is you know has replaced historical materialism so in, in uh, under under communism you were getting history is marching in a single direction right and, and everyone was spoon fed this. Now everyone is spoon-fed at school and university. The idea that everyone is different and, and, and all moving in different directions. So therefore, um, there is a sort of receptive basis uh, for this kind of thinking. And, 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 and I do think you're right, Alexander, that Putin is, is probably more responding to it than, than, than leading it because I, I, one gets the sense he's been dragged down this path, kicking and screaming to, to, a, certain, to a certain degree. Um, although... The advent of what you might call postmodernism in 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 the West and and you know wokeism and cancel culture and all this stuff is something which um, Russians actually across the political spectrum, including many liberals, don't like very much, right? And therefore, that that you know has has um, also helped generate this feeling that the West is moving in a direction we don't want to go. Postmodern. That's the that's the you you mentioned before that. Uh, uh, Russia's uh, well, uh, refer or Putin referring to Russia as European. That uh, does this have to contradict uh, the, the conservatism of Russia, though? Because if conservatism implies the you know building a present based on the past or having this gradual change that you well, if you, you that you decouple from your own past, uh, like from my perspective, I always thought that uh, Russia's key challenge, uh, which is also uh, mentioned by conservatives in the in the 19th century was they had such a divisive or fragmented history because again it started in Kiev and Rus a thousand years ago as uh, you know um, as a around the built around the orthodox uh, faith and there it fragments they're invaded by the mongols then they're under the mongol yoke for another two and a half century then you have the sardom of russia lasting all the way to 1720 uh, in which yeah, they are more or less decoupled uh, from Europe. Continues, and then, of course, we have uh, like another another Russia emerging, which is the European Russia. At uh, which point in time, Peter the Great, you know, defeats the Swedes, and he wants to. Well, he coincides this with this cultural revolution, where we want to remake Russia as a European state. Now, at this point, of course, you have uh, uh, this is when, of course, a lot of uh, Russian conservatism emerges because now they're trying to. With this cultural revolution, they're trying to sever themselves from their own Moscovy past, and um, and this is what creates the division between you know the Westernizer wanting to go to Europe, to to Europe, and the Slavophiles wanting to preserve their distinctiveness. And again, this is why I also noticed when Alexander said this, uh, this all sounds awfully familiar. The way what we're discussing now is yeah, because we this discussion is not new. This has been around for quite some time now, uh, but. But what I'm thinking about is uh, a lot of conservatives, uh, you know, Dostoevsky um, and others, they kind of point out that uh, uh, these efforts by the Slavophile conservatives to 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 abandon uh, this uh, Europe of Peter the Great, that this is also a very revolutionary act going against conservative principles, because this is a huge pillar in Russian history. So, so in other words, he argued that the uh, conservative approach should include uh, the European history of Russia. So it has to be, you know, Kievan Rus, it has to be Mongol Russia, it has to be Sardom Russia, it has to be Peter the Great's European Russia. And, uh, you know, making the matter more complicated today, of course, uh, me and Alexander discussed earlier was, you know, the Soviet history, which is completely, you know, they destroyed any, anything of conservatism, they went against the church, the nation, the culture, but still the Soviet history is a very important part of Russian history today. So that, that also paradoxically is something you have that legacy you have to preserve if you're a real conservative. Mm -hmm. Even the liberals of the 90s, you have to preserve some of this if you this is also a period in Russian history. So you kind of have to bring together all these fragmented pieces of Russian history if you're gonna have one thousand year long cohesive uh, national narrative, you know, 
right. forming the collective psyche. So I'm just uh, the, so does the Europeanness of Russia does it have to contradict the conservatism or or, or, or when does it uh, contradict it? No, it, it, it does. It, it it doesn't have to, to contradict it. And even if you go back to to the mid nineteenth century and 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 the Slavophiles, they were thoroughly Europeanized people. Who, who who weren't actually saying that Russia Russia should should um, go a separate path from 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 Europe? They felt that Europe had gone the wrong way, and that Russia would would rescue Europe and 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 you know bring back to Europe the values it had lost, and then Russia and Europe would 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 progress together down the path of, of universal history. Um, and um, you know this this remains. Um, you know, a part of sort of orthodox thinking, you know, thereafter, and and I think is 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 still you know the, the case the case today actually to some degree, um, and um, I mean Russians today ha- have a very difficult um, problem in that you know you have to try and create some sort of national identity, which as you say, Glenn, needs to include all these things in your past, um, and. You know the, the the approach of of the Russian state under Putin has been to try and um, you know take take what are seen as the best bits of all the past and forget about the bad bits and and then you you, you can have you know uh, you can celebrate the glory of, of, of the Russian Empire and then you can celebrate in the civil war you can celebrate the reds and the whites so there was a monument went up about a year or so ago in, in Sevastopol which was a sort of monument of reconciliation which had you know um, white soldiers and red soldiers together. On, on the monument because they're, they're both Russian. You know, they're all the sons of, of Mother Russia who, who who died, both sides believing in what they what what they did, and we should we should honor them both, despite the fact that they're completely incompatible. Um, and then you know it, you you celebrate the, the Soviet victory in the Second World War and and, and the, the space program, and you preserve, as you said, Glenn, you know, some degrees of, of nine you know, 1990s liberalism, free markets, and, and and so on and so forth. And you 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 try and squeeze it all into some coherent whole. And, and the result will be, you know, pictures of um you know Russian priests, you know, sprinkling in spraying incense around um Soviet war memorials of Soviet flags flying, which is kind of incongruous in a way to us, because like, you know, we know what we know what the Soviets did to to, to priests, but but somehow to Russians this 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 makes sense. Um, apart from, of course, to 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 certain radicals, um, particularly sort of liberal radicals who think that you know the only solution to make Russia a proper Western country is to to decommunize and, and smash all the memory of the of, of the uh, of the past and, and rebuild completely renew in 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 a revolutionary way. So, um, but that that's. I mean that's too destructive for a fairly conservative-minded state, which is trying to meld every meld all these narratives into some mm-hmm. sort of um, coherent whole. And I think actually, on the whole, does it reasonably successfully? Mm-hmm. Um, what I was going to say, it, it seems like it's uh, working to some extent. You mentioned the priests, uh, you know, blessing uh, Soviet, um, <clears throat> well, uh, fallen warriors, but uh, soldiers, but. But you also see uh, the head of the Communist Party. I think he he told you know that if if Jesus was here today, you know he would probably be a communist. So you know they they kind of well you get the impression if the communists will take over today, they wouldn't curse the churches. You know this is this period is over. That you're kind of bringing together these you know divisive factions which used to fight among each other. Uh, the same as yeah, when we started discussing Putin, I thought it was interesting that Putin had a, a lot of this. Uh, uh, soldiers from the White Army who were exiled, you know, reburied in in Moscow, and uh, essentially rehabilitating a lot of them. And but again, not 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 turning on the Red Army, but instead, um, yeah, celebrating bo- both of these uh, different mm-hmm. factions. It seems that this that's why this uh, project of conservatism is also seems like a project of uh, unifying what has been, you know, very massive Russian history, where you have always the opposition is seen as an enemy to be defeated, defeated in order for your side to win. Um, sorry, Alexander, I think you're... No, no, I was, I was listening, actually. I was wanting to hear what Paul had to say about this because I do think it's interesting. I just wanted to, uh, since you've brought me in, I did want to ask about the role of the Orthodox Church because one of the things that came across to me very, very strongly re- rereading your book is that these 
conservatives of the 19th century, the one thing essentially all of them are is Christians. They're orthodox Christians. By the way, I should perhaps declare here that I am an orthodox Christian myself, though perhaps not with quite the same fervor that some of these people have had. But anyway, they were orthodox Christian thinkers and writers, thinking of worrying very much about the position of their church, worrying very much about the faith. What is the role of orthodoxy in Russia today? I mean, is it really reasserting itself? Is it possible for it to form the kind of core of Russianness that some of these 19th century writers imagined? Or is it something that today in Russia, Russians themselves, yes, I mean, they they look to the Orthodox Church as something that some of them look back to, some of it's part of the Russian landscape, if you like, but it's not central to them in quite the same way. But they take all of these other ideas of these writers, which have a sort of originally Christian origin, and they try to take pick and choose amongst these ideas as well as they try to form this ideology to sort of cohere, to create coherence around what would otherwise be a really rather fragmented system. I hope this is, I hope I make some kind yeah. of sense. I mean, it's, it's yeah. very hard to, um, yeah. it's very hard to discuss Russian, you know, philosophy without discussing orthodoxy because, because you know, very, you know, apart from communists, now there are, and even communists, some people think are really, you know, um, heavily influenced by orthodoxy, even though they don't want to admit it. But um, it's very hard to find, um, for instance, a 19th century Russian philosopher who's who's not orthodox, in, in, or at least not Christian in some way. Even even Tolstoy, who turns his back on the church, is is, is still you know deeply deeply Christian. Um, and what this means is actually when, when people talk about Russian exceptionalism, it it, it is historically speaking a a um or russian's mission in the world it, it's historically a spiritual thing much more than an imperial um geopolitical thing okay which is to do you know in the slavophile imagination of um restoring to the world those spiritual elements which have been lost due to the hyper rationalization of modern western philosophy okay. um now the extent to which any of this is, is still true is 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 debatable because Russians have become as materialistic and and, and rationalistic as anybody else. Um, and, and in this sense, um, it's kind of strange that this idea of Russia is very different, has come back again at a time when Russians are probably much more like us than they ever have been in the past. And I was a student in the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was like, it was a different world. Whereas if you go to Moscow now, you, you could be in any any decent European city. So, so, so <laughs> they've actually converged while at the same time um, have, have begun to stress how, how different they are. Um, but that's perhaps something we can, we can move on to later. But but um, I don't think maybe that thing is maybe still there in quite the same way because the Soviet Union did deal orthodoxy a pretty severe blow. And although the church has, has recovered immensely since then, there's been an enormous increase in the number of churches um, and enormous increase in the number of people who say they, they, are, they are orthodox, it would you'd be hard put to say that it goes very deep. Mm. Um, so I saw one survey in which 80% um, of Russians said they were they're orthodox and 40% said they didn't believe in God. So <laughs> there's a bit of paradox. There's a lot of people who are saying they're orthodox who don't believe in God. Um, it Because so being orthodox has become um, an identity thing, right? You know, we, we are orthodox. So, so, you, so, you, so you wear a cross or whatever, or you, you're a taxi driver, you, you shove a cross up in your taxi or whatever. Uh, 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 and this is, you know, this is who you are because this, this, makes, you, this makes you Russian. But it doesn't mean you go to church. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't mean you you you, you celebrate the, the the fasting days or or or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so it it it's somewhat shallow. Now the church's response to this has been, you know, according to one book I read, was a sort of philosophy what's called in churching. The idea is you 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 get people more and more wrapped up in certain rituals, mm. such as like on Epiphany, they 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 
they go and jump in, jump in the lake. They cut a hole in the lake and jump in. This is really popular. Putin does it. Okay. And um, if you can get people doing these rituals, then gradually they become part of the church community and hopefully the faith will follow eventually. Okay. But at the moment, it hasn't gone much deeper than people going through the rituals. In a way, they wouldn't have done, of course, 40 years ago. Whereas now, obviously, they, they do. Mm. Um, but how deep it goes, I mean, is, is, is questionable. Because this is, can I just say, I mean, this is pre-revolutionary Russia. And the impression I get is it's the Christian empire in its own self-conception with the Christian emperor. Today's Russia is not a Christian empire in that kind of way at all. Interestingly, not an empire that considers itself universalist in that way, but it, it, it celebrates the diversity, at least in the conception of some of these thinkers. It celebrates the diversity within itself, and it even celebrates, and of course it starts celebrates the diversity with others. But, uh, but, it's still a profoundly different country. I mean, it's like it's like comparing, you know, the world of today with, you know, the world of, I don't know, Atlantis. It's a, it, it's a sort of vanished Atlantis, one feels, ultimately. And yet its ideas are all coming back in this fascinating way. I, I mean, anyway, that, that's just... Yeah, I mean, is it, is it a different world? Is it not? Um, in some respects, yes. But yeah. it, it's, I, personally, I find it less of a different world than I did 40 years ago when I was a student in Soviet Union. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, uh, living here in Canada, when I, you, know, you meet Americans, sometimes you think they're in a different planet. Right? I mean, it, 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 it's, it, it very depends which America you're speaking to, of course. But, but um, yeah. um, you know, um, sometimes you just think, wow, you know, like, these people are weird. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, you know, what's with all the guns or whatever, right? In, in America, right? Um, um, it's just Canadians. It doesn't doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and I have less of that going to Russia now than I used to. Um, strangely enough, so 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 uh, I, I just maybe slightly disagree with you on that part. Maybe okay. I can I can get the American one though because if you have uh, again, if conservatism means you you have to preserve the roots as your you know, civilization flourishes, whatever, you need to, you know, go back to the origin and, and preserve it. So for the Americans, it's very easy to yeah, go back to the Constitution, you know, the First uh, Second Amendment and all. But then, uh, so even people who might not see their rationality in all these guns uh, still steals a cultural attachment almost. And I think the same with, with the Russian. Uh, that's why I thought this uh, cultural Christian, I thought it was a, it's a, it's a good, good, good concept because uh, the Orthodox Church for Russia was had all this very revolutionary, completely detached period through its history, completely fragmented. The only common thread that tends to be, you know, the Orthodox Church. Uh, you know, from Kievan Rus, they don't even have the same uh, geography anymore. They're no longer, well, not maybe soon in Kiev, but they're not in Kiev now. Anyways, the, the geography has changed, so it's uh, everything is different. So the only common uh, theme throughout its entire thousand-year history has been the Orthodox Church. So I think that's why it's... Uh, important to uh, you can't really have uh, russian conservatism without the church yeah. uh, but well, that, uh, that could be of course why um the ukrainian government is attacking the orthodox church you know at, at I, I mean today there's a big standoff outside the the lavra in, in the monastery in kiev and i think that's precisely because you know the orthodox church uh moscow patriarchate is, is a unifying um institution of russianness uh, yeah, and, and therefore obviously from a ukrainian point of view that that is considered dangerous in time of war so you know. because uh well i also thought these rituals were interesting because uh i uh, i have read about this <laughs> this uh approach as well just make you know put all the christian symbol the rituals in place and then absorb it the cultural identity but 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 actually the same uh, findings find that whoever subscribes to this uh, orthodox identity, you see uh, the the life choices changing as well. They, they tend to have uh, get married sooner, have larger families, uh, fewer divorces. So effectively, creating a more well, uh, yes, a, a stronger society around this. And of course, if this also translates then into church going, then yeah, it would be a bonus. But uh, uh, 
but it seems to be um, yeah a priority though in terms of building you know, restoring the traditional values uh, the family as the also as an institution which you know suffered uh, somewhat under the Soviet authorities um, but um, uh, anyway so I, I, want, <laughs> I just want to, I want to switch gears a bit to this concept of, of Eurasianism because I thought that was uh, mm. an, an interesting again another approach of, of the conservatives because uh, what I find interesting with in in Russia is uh, you know, when you have these divisions between, which we also have in the West, of course, between preserving traditional spiritual values and the you know, community, or you go for the rational, uh, rational, uh, you know, individualism. Uh, for Russia, this always manifested itself geographically, as you know, the Islam files, for example. You know, re realizing if you want to preserve your distinctive uh, past, you have to you know, subscribe to the. To the, to the Slavic or the Eastern dimension of your uh, identity, while the people who wanted to modernize, uh, pursue, you know, uh, more, more rationalism, more individualism, they go to Europe. So it always manifested itself, this, you know, rationality and, this, uh, and instinctiveness as uh, East versus West. West. But, uh, but, um, but Eurasianism, uh, does this offer a, a different alternative or how, how do you see this? So, so I mean, Eurasianism, um, which you know, began in in the nineteen twenties, um, is this idea that you know Russia is neither Europe nor the East, but something uniquely itself, Eurasian. Okay, a a a, um, and that um, if you look at the boundaries of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union, they they form an organic whole because. Um, geographically they fit together and you know the botany is the same and distinct from that of Europe and you can find connections of language between Central Asia and Russian because of the Mongol influence and um, so on and so forth and Eurasianists came up all sorts of you know somewhat cherry-picked facts it must be said to, to indicate why why Russia and Central Asia were really one uh, uh, and therefore the, the boundaries of the Soviet Union were not colonial but were um, you know, organic, right? Mm. Um, which was a good theory because you could then denounce colonialism, Western colonialism while also preserving the Russian Empire. <laughs> because the Russian Empire is different because it's an organic, linguistic, cultural, uh, geographic, um, botanical, whatever whole, right? Um, I mean, it's popular in some intellectual circles and it has its influence in 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 the sense that um clearly you know the, the modern russian state you know talks of you know eurasian economic union and um it 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 very much um has tended to be opposed to russian ethno-nationalism um mm -hmm. uh, and to stress the fact that russia is a, is a is a multicultural multi-confessional multi-ethnic community okay which which is not just um Russian and not just European, but 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 it, but is a, but is a whole lot more. You know, so, so Eurasianism serves um, um some um some purposes, um, but I think it's it's limited in its appeal in that um, I don't think most Russians regard themselves as Eurasian. Mm. Um, and this idea that you know we form an organic whole with, with, with the peoples of Central Asia and so on. Is, is, I don't think most people would really go with that, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, at heart, you know, they're, they're, they're European, really, I mean, much more than they are Central Asian. And, and also, um, as, as um, you know, one conservative philosopher said, you know, um, the, the Asians don't think we're Asian either. <laughs> it's not it's not like they think they know we're white and christian um and so you know we're kind of kidding ourselves if we really think that um you know we're, we're eurasian so so it has it has some it has some usefulness uh and of course in a changing um geopolitical context in which asia is rising okay it it, it is you know, um, useful to be able to say we're, we're, we're not just part of this dying former hegemon. We, we are more than that. Okay. Um, but, you know, going back to what I said about, you know, some people think that, you know, the Russian elites would, would, 
would go back to Davos at the drop of a hat if they could. Um, I suspect that's possibly true, actually. <laughs> but they, they don't really deep down consider themselves Eurasian. Hmm. But I guess where in interest uh, coincide, economic interest, modernization coincides with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with the identity. Because I, the reason I ask is because if you look back in the 1920s, a lot of the key Eurasianists were people like Tubetsko or Savitsky, they were, you know, of course, saying, you know, Russia is, you know, distinctive with its Eurasian character. However, they also seem to have a different uh, idea of modernization. They, they seem mm -hmm. to build on some of uh, Sergei Vitti's idea of, uh, you know, connecting, uh, well, making sure that Russia's modernization didn't depend on following a Western footsteps, but instead being this, uh, well, civilizational bridge to Asia as well. So, uh, uh, so well, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's an economic model element to this, and the, the, the Savitsky um, said that you know um, the, the the cheapest way of doing trade is by sea, basically, and therefore this gave the maritime powers a huge huge advantage. And Russia would would simply never be able to if Russia tried to be part of a sort of global market in this way, it would lose. Right. It, 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 so this was simply not a not a sustainable way for Russia to go. And therefore, it needed to focus on building like continental uh, railways and, and, and um, uh, continental infrastructure and building trade within the Eurasian space. OK, as, and this, this fits into this fits into Duganism as well, because Dugan picks up on um, geopolitical thinking of people like Harold Mackinder. And this idea of a difference between the, the maritime states and the continental states fighting each other, mm. right? So um, this obviously you can see coming into form now. Um, again, I think not for a matter of choice. I, I don't think the Russian state wanted to go this way, okay? Mm. Because previously they, you know, it was all about joining the WTO and all that kind of stuff, right? So they 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 were trying to integrate in the globalize, globalizing mm. uh, world. But because of sanctions, um, this is, is obviously now being cut off. And my suspicion is it's been cut off, if not forever, then for a very, 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 very long time. Mm. Okay, certainly the whole of my lifetime and probably my children's lifetime. And, and therefore, of course, this, this Eurasian model suddenly um, begins to make a lot more sense because it, it really is the, 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 the only option mm. left, left, open, left open to you. Okay, mm -hmm. and therefore, you know, starting thinking about Eurasian integration, um, you know, continental transport hubs. There's been talk, um, you know, about the Russians building a railway across um, in Afghanistan, for instance, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't think anything necessarily will come of it, but, but a project was announced a, a year or so ago. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is the kind of, you know, uh, would fit in within this logic, because then, then the idea is that your stuff could go down to India like really fast um, by train. Um, mm. And of course, then you, you, you'd um, skip all these problems which, which come from, um, you know, American mm. control of the seas and, and so on and so forth. So, so, so there, is some, there is some definite economic logic to all this within the context of, of, of the world of probably fairly perpetual sanctions. Because this is quite interesting though, because it shows that um, policy decisions which we make in the West may have consequences in the sense that Russia, perhaps in the 90s and the early 2000s, the early Putin years, indeed in the 1980s under Gorbachev, was seeking a degree of integration. It wanted itself to be part of the Western system. But it didn't happen. And, you know, we can debate forever who was to blame for that. But I mean, I think in the West, we played a role we made decisions and because it hasn't happened all kinds of ideas which were already there lying in the background have come surfacing back Eurasianism being one and the result is an economic and logistical and perhaps ideological system is starting to emerge which might in the end actually make economic reintegration of Russia, much more difficult, even if the political tensions eventually fade away. And I wonder whether people in the West have understood that. I mean, you know, Putin made that famous comment 
completely different context. Do they understand what they have done? And I do wonder sometimes whether we understand what we have done. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right here in, in that, um, as I said, I, I think, you know, Russia and the West have in many ways culturally converged in the past 40 years. But if we're going to have perpetual sanctions, which I think we are, right, um, because I, I don't see how Russia can give us what we demand for the lifting of sanctions, um, then, of course, Russia is going to be forced to, 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 it will be cut off from us. I mean, you can't even get a plane to Moscow from a, from a Western country, right? So um, it's going to be cut off from us. You know, students don't go there anymore, which used to. Um, and over decades, the effects of this is, is, is going to be, especially as the economic power in the world shifts, right? And you know, more and more trade, Russia is going to be done with China and India and everything else. The infrastructure is going to point that way. If, if you're more and more people in Russia will start learning Chinese, Indian languages, you know, Hindi or whatever, right? Um, that at the end of it all, we will have, um, you know, a very different Russia with a different view of its own identity um, and with different national interests, okay, which are not connected to us, which would mean that if 70 years from now we lift the sanctions, the Russians maybe won't be desperately interested in coming back anymore, right? So, so um, things may change um, very dramatically. And as you say, new ideologies, you know, are, are coming up. And, and um, it was interesting in this decree of Putin's yesterday, which I, I mentioned, there's a lot of talk about decolonization, anti-colonialism, Russia's traditional role as, you know, a supporter of national liberation movements. There's clearly a pitch going on for the, for the, for the global south. Which, however, also has its origins in some of those 19th century thinkers in the sense that oh, some I, of them were already and talking in an anti-imperialist way i mean there was one who says you know wherever england goes with its ships you know all kinds of terrible things happen whereas yes. we of course are different but there's already an anti-imperialist narrative going all the way back to the 19th century and it's you know there's a soviet anti-imperialism but there's a conservative russian anti-imperialism and they're both rising to the surface once more yeah i mean you're right there again um so one of the big slavic house homiakov um i think it was his letter to the serbs or something i can't remember which one exactly been around 1840 something you know and he was a great anglophile who who um exhibited a steam engine at the the great exhibition in the coastal palace but but still i mean he, he wrote this thing as you say saying you know um, beware the English, you know, where, <laughs> wherever they turn up, they 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 um they they bring horrible things. Um and um the Eurasianists were clearly anti-colonialist. I mean, this was was, was a very strong um uh, discourse in there of, of, of anti-colonialism. I mean, of course the Soviets were um, you know, very obviously you know, hitched themselves to that wagon, and it would appear that the Russian state is now. Um, turning back to that, and there was a big meeting of African uh, politicians in in Moscow a week or so ago, um, from a large number of African states who clearly, by turning up in Moscow, and are not expressing a desire to be isolated, um, um, to have isolated Russia. And we we see expansion of you know Russian influence beginning to go in, in into Africa. So what this means is is is, is Russians are. Um, you know, they're changing the focus of their attention. It's almost as if, okay, the West has given up on us. So, you know, we're going to look elsewhere for friends. And, you know, if that continues for a very long time, then you'll have a very different Russia probably at the, probably at the end of it. Yeah. Can I just ask both of you a particular point about Russian conservatism? Because, again, I was reading, I read Paul's book. I haven't... Uh, I, I was thinking a lot very much about one aspect of Russian conservatism, which is that it's not militaristic. It's not a militaristic conservative nationalism of the kind that I'm so I, I'm you know, familiar with from other countries. I mean, people talk about Germany, but I've also know about this kind of thing in the Balkans, for example, Balkan nationalism. I'm of Greek origin. Uh, Balkan nationalism can often take a very militaristic form. This doesn't seem to me, from what I was reading, to be very much 
the Russian conservative thing. It was not about, you know, the army. It wasn't about military power. It was not about military expansion. It was very heavily focused on cultural and uh, uh, spiritual things. That's not to say, of course, that power isn't always an important thing. It's always there lurking in the background. They're all aware that, you know, Russia is a great power. They wanted to remain a great power. But it's not a country, an ideology, which is defined around military force. It's, I'm going to say, actually rather non-aggressive. Would you agree? Um, I mean, there are obviously, you know, there are some aggressive um, Russian conservatives. Dan Alevsky, for instance, you know, was, was quite belligerent. Um, on the other hand, um, yeah. Tsar Alexander III, who was in the Tsar at the time, um, hated war. I mean, he he yeah. served in the uh, in the um, Russian Turkish War, eighteen seventy seven seventy eight. He hated it, uh, and he 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 made it very clear that you know he wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. Now he he built up the army because he said you know the West is going to push us around like crazy unless we have a strong army. And, and um, but at the same time, he he was resolutely um, against it, and, and indeed he ended up with the title of of, of the Tsar um, peacekeeper. Yet he was deeply. Um, deeply conservative. Um, if you go back in time, one of the original sort of Russian conservative thinkers, Admiral Shishkov, um, who was secretary to Tsar Alexander I, after Napoleon had been driven out of Russia, he said, we should stop, you know, let, you know, we fight to defend ourselves. Alexander said, no, we must convert Europe to the Enlightenment and, and um, bring God to, to Europe and always had very, very mystical ideas. And, and you know, Shishkov said, this, you know, we don't, we don't we don't need to bring God to the Europeans, we just care about Russia. <laughs> and you know, as long as Russia's okay, what the hell of them? So so there is a sort of isolationist trend, you might say, mm. which which um which thinks you know we defend ourselves, but we don't need any of this um bringing enlightenment to the world stuff. That's what the communists did, and it brought us disaster. You know, we should just sit at home, mind our own business, and um yeah. you know. Solzhenitsyn was into this, you know, we, we should sit at home and care for our souls, you know. Um, uh, I mean, of course, um, there are limits, you know, then the question is, you know, what is home, okay? And I think certainly in the case of Ukraine, Russian conservatives regard Ukraine as part of the home, right? And, and therefore, um, they, will be, they regard this as a sort of an exception to this, you know, isolationist idea because this in their ideas is Russia okay um and you know they, they don't really accept the idea of Ukraine as a separate place and, and 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 therefore um that is why they will support you know military activity there um because because it is it it is it, not seen as imperialism it is you I mean, and I'm talking about what it's seen as. Please, no one get me wrong here because you could argue it is imperialism but for their eyes it's not imperialism it's just you know this is our country. I mean, that, that, that's the rhetoric. I mean. Well, that goes to the foundation of conservatism as well. If it's about preserving the distinctiveness of your own culture and civilization, it uh, doesn't take on the universalist uh, credo. If you see you're promoting, uh, you know, communism or liberal democracy, suddenly you're claim, if you're claiming there's universal uh, values or aspect to mankind, then you can assert your sovereignty or rule over others, or per definition, imperialism. Uh, yes, bring your rule over over yeah, for foreign peoples. But no, you're right. If you're if you consider your culture and civilizational home to be, uh, you know, tracing back to Kievan Rus, challenging the uh, the existence of a Ukrainian statehood, then this wouldn't be imperialism. Then you would assert control over your own people. Now, I'm not saying that's my my perspective. I'm just saying uh, that this would be the uh, the, the approval of. Uh, of, of military force, if you are if you're rejecting universalism, but still seeking to protect the distinctiveness. So again, going to Ukraine to defend the Orthodox Church or protecting Russian speakers, uh, language of course being quite central, and uh, of course Orthodox Christians. Yeah, so there's, there's a different logic, therefore, in Russian use of force than than in say Western use of force in recent years. Western use of force has tended in the past twenty years to always be wrapped up in in, in rhetoric of democracy, human rights, and so on. E even when, of course, arguably something else is going on, 
Um, the rhetorical justification is, is always in, in, in those terms, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas um, Russians make use of a different rhetorical justification um, when using force. It's not, it's not, as Glenn says, in, in terms of universal ideas, at least not since the collapse of communism. Is that why around the world people are less nervous of it? I mean, we in the West have reacted very strongly to the Ukrainian war. But the fact that the Russians are not describing their conflict in Ukraine in the kind of way that we do, you know, as a crusade basically to expand expand democracy, human rights, liberal values, but essentially from a Russian perspective as a defensive operation to protect Russian speakers, to defend their interests in a particular place which is close to them. Is that why the rest of the world perhaps doesn't so feel so threatened by it? In fact, can almost sympathise with it, at least to some extent? Um, yeah, very possibly. I mean, I, I think obviously mm. states in, in, in the rest of the world value um, sovereignty and borders, yeah. and therefore they're, they're not on the most part happy with what the Russians have done. On the other hand, they're not desperately fond of the West either in, in, in many ways. And of course they have the experience of, of, of colonialism. So they, they, they don't, because the West has made it its thing to, 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 to fight the Russians, I, I think you know a lot of the, the, the third world doesn't doesn't want to get on board with that. They, they, they would feel uncomfortable with that and and don't regard it as a, a direct threat to them precisely because you know it, it's it's not and of course, you know, when you see like the Chinese and the the Russians um, being involved in, in in, for instance, in Africa, um, assistance is is not um, conditional upon change. So, whereas you know, Western aid, I mean, for some for some good reasons, but you don't want to be handing out money to to corrupt officials who are going to just go blow it on themselves. You know, we we tend to 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 make our you know, all our assistance always conditional on human rights, reform, free market changes, blah, 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 right? Um, whereas, you know, the Chinese and the Russians will come in and just say, well, we'll help you, okay? And then they don't add any ideological burden on it. And that, that tends to be preferred, I think. Yeah, yeah that's the one. Uh, well, again, the, the, the benefits of dealing with conservative powers, I guess, if you do arguing that we want uh, civilizational pluralism uh, and you go to another region you say, you know, to Africa, you be you, you be Africans who will be Russians or Chinese. Uh, yeah, that's another one. I think even though the Communist Party of China seems to be very conservative in its uh, well civilizational thinking, uh, but it's uh, but I think it's a helpful way of understanding uh, like our conflict with Russia because again during the Cold War we had a common understanding of what 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 ideology we're conf- we're in conflict over. Again, we're capitalist, they're communist. They see it the same way. But after the Cold War. When we redivide the world, we say, no, no, this is now between liberalism and authoritarianism, which means we're fighting on the good side of liberalism. But but this is not a common understanding because uh, Russia doesn't say we're fighting on behalf of, you know, under the banner of authoritarianism. We want to, this is not what they're fighting for. So I think it's important to see that that, 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 that they are, they they see themselves as fighting for distinctive uh, culture, uh, civilizational pluralism, and they reject this universalist uh, credo of the West, which which they see as a means of giving us the prerogative to uh, promote sovereign inequality around the world. So, um, so it's uh, you know one, one can agree with the Russian or or disagree with them, but it's but it's uh, but it's interesting. Well, it's it's worth noting that they, they don't share our view of how the world is divided. I mean, you're absolutely right. We're, we're, we're kind of arguing at cross purposes. Right. So, so, as you say, this is always portrayed in the West as, as a fight between liberal, you know, democracy and autocracy. Okay. So, what's going on in Ukraine is a fight of democracy versus autocracy, um, because essentially we carried forward the model of the Cold War, and this is how this is the way we conceive the world. And therefore, for us, it, if Putin's invaded Ukraine, it must be because he hates the fact that Ukraine is a democracy. Mm. Whereas, in fact, no Russian I know actually thinks Ukraine is a democracy. So, so this is just isn't the, the the model that they have of the world. So, so this is what we think we're fighting for. But as you say, it's not what they think they're fighting for. And and the way they portray the the ideological struggle is, as you say, 
between a unilinear model of history, everyone progressing towards the same end of history, which is the West, mm -hmm. as opposed to a civilizational view of history, which is multipolar, with different civilizations advancing in their own direction. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the ideological framework that the Russian state has adopted to um, justify um, what it is doing. Um, so we have a situation, as you say, in which one side thinks the war is about this and the other side thinks the war is about that. And this, of course, makes it very difficult for us to come to a resolution because we're ultimately fighting about entirely different things and we have no common language about how to resolve this. I think that's also as difficult to re reach out to the rest of the world, the world well, outside the West, West or NATO, because uh, I think a lot of the world is quite uncomfortable with uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But of course, you have the war at a different level, which is also a war between Russia and NATO. And that's why I think the anti-colonial rhetoric of Russia is quite appealing to many, because then it's it's not the you know, liberalism versus authoritarianism. It's a hegemony versus counter-hegemony. <coughs> this is very appealing, I guess, to <coughs> much of the world. For example, the Indians, the, when 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 they refuse to jump on that <coughs> bandwagon, they're not uh, they're not uh, refuting. You know, it's the world's largest democracy refuting democracy. There. They're seeing, you know, NATO as a hegemonic power conflicted with, with uh, Russia, which they see as, uh, you know, pushing against the hegemon. But that doesn't mean at <clears> any <throat> point would give uh, consent to, you know, Russia invading Ukraine. Because, you know, again, two, 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 two different uh, yeah. topics. I, I think this is, I think this is why, to some degree, the, the Russian state has adopted this civilizational discourse. As I said, I think they were quite late coming to it. They, they were behind Russian society to some degree. But they've adopted it precisely because it, it has diplomatic, or in part because they believe it, but in part because it has diplomatic appeal outside of the rest of the world. This is, this is, a, this is a, a, a framing which they can use, um, which will you know, win them, if not allies, at least you know, neutrality of, of a very large part of the world. And, and, and in fact, we're seeing that outside what you, know, you might call the collective West, you know, no one is imposing... Um, Sanctions on Russia, not not even Mexico, which is you know um, quite quite interesting. Um, so 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 in that sense, the, the the Russian rhetoric has it has you know at least some appeal um, internationally. Uh, yeah. So before we wrap this up, uh, does anyone have any final things they want to say? Oh, you're muted, Alexander. Sorry. Just one very brief question to both of you. I mean, do you, I mean, do you feel that today we can speak about Russia uh, as a country with this a conservative ideology, if you can call it an ideology? I mean, is it a conservative? Is it now a conservative country? Is this what it's become? I mean, has, I, I has think this the Russians? I wouldn't say they have an ideology. I mean, strictly speaking, the Russian Constitution bans a state ideology. Um, and it's not sufficiently formulated to be able to say that there is a state ideology, but there is a, it is a country ruled by a decidedly conservative outlook, one might say. Well, I would say it's uh, quite appealing both in domestic and internationally, because domestic, of course, this helps to bring together yeah, the different uh, fragmented pieces of Russian history and create the, uh, in, internal solidarity, which is necessary for Russia to well be safe and to prosper, but also internationally, I think that this is a, uh, this is an appealing um, position to have in the wider world, uh, as we see now yeah, with the, the non-Western world being quite sympathetic to Russia, but also within the West, uh, a lot of conservatives in the West now uh, is taken a bit of a shining to mm -hmm. to Russia. Uh, more so before the invasion of Ukraine, of course, but uh, but I, I think this is because when the Russians are redefining the div divisions of the world, not being liberalism versus authoritarianism, uh, as many conservatives in the West uh, concerned about the excesses of liberalism, I think you know this whole uh, nationalism versus globalism uh, narrative, the dividing lines, that this is also something uh, appealing. So I think it has both domestic and uh, international utility and. Uh, Lastly, I think that it also feeds into the to the Eurasianism because uh, we we spoke previously about the you know if Russian starts learning other languages because I remember uh, a few years ago I was working as a professor at the Higher School of Economics in Moscow where our main project was you know, working on uh, you know um, uh, well, researching the Eurasian economic infrastructure so the, the technology to transportation corridors industries and 
you know, uh, diversification of currencies. And all our students had to learn language. It had to be Asian. So they were all learning Korean, Japanese, or Chinese. So I just, of course, this was a special institution, but not, not all of the Russian universities, but, uh, but you already see a lot of these pieces beginning to fall, fall, fall in place in which they redefine their identity, their culture, and, uh, yeah, what makes Russia unique, which is its, uh, yeah, Eurasian components. Uh, sorry for the long answer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's, that's, that's me. I mean, thank you both for an enlightening conversation. I don't know if, if there's anything more to say. I, ha I have to move on. I have to move on to uh, uh, jump onto another program in a moment. So, yeah. Oh, so, thank, so, you, thank you. Thank you. Hang on. Really appreciate your time. Okay. Thank Take you. Care. Thank you very much.